Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Dr. Robert Smith Jr. and I are here again to introduce you to a great contemporary preacher. He's actually our colleague here at Beeson Divinity School. We're privileged to know and work closely with Dr. Douglas Webster. And we're going to hear a sermon uh, by Dr. Webster that was originally preached uh, in a series we did at Beeson called The Faith We Confess. And we assigned him to do that part of the creed that affirms the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what's unusual about this is that it was done near the end of the fall semester. In, uh, we called it Easter in November. And so the sermon is entitled Running on Empty. And he takes off on 1 Corinthians 15. Dr. Smith, tell us what we're going to hear from our friend Doug Webster. Thank you, Dean George. It's very interesting. The title, Running on Empty, is only mentioned one time in the sermon, and it's at the very, very end. But uh, it leads us to that, this whole idea of the resurrection. He challenges us to walk through the text with him. And, you know, that's exactly what we do. All 58 verses, basically, he treats, and we walk through The whole resurrection chapter. The whole (laughs) resurrection chapter. In fact, um, you know that he is the master when it comes to maintaining tension in the text. That's one of his great homiletical uh, words and uh, investments, actually. Uh, It's amazing how he walks through it without making it a lecture. it's, It's a... It's really theological preaching at its best. Mm -hmm. Heavy theology that uh, can be grasped, if you will, even by the common layperson. So he's preacher-teacher. One of the things you get here is this is the heart of a pastor. Yes. Someone who's struggled with people, who's cried and wept and visited hospitals with parishioners. And he's speaking out of that wealth of pastoral wisdom that he's accrued over the years of his own ministry and then applying it to the life of a seminary community. And another thing that's really remarkable about this sermon, I think, is the fact that uh, it shows you can preach the whole gospel any time of the year. Exactly. You don't have to wait till Easter week to preach an Easter sermon. This is Easter in November, and yet it has the power of the whole message of Jesus Christ risen again and the hope that brings to us. And you, you said something about uh, the pastoral element here. Who who could not be touched by this illustration he shares about his father who was uh, terminally ill and had not moved for three days? And three days later, uh, he raised his hands in the air and then died. And according to Dr. Webster, he says, now, people can think what they want to think about it, but according to the Webster family, it was as if the father was giving himself to God in anticipation of the resurrection. Uh, This testimony is a powerful part uh, of this sermon. It's not just uh, exegeting the text, but it's exegeting life and giving hope that there is more to this life. Beyond this life, there is really life. You know, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Reformation asked the question, What is your only hope in life and death? And the answer is that I belong body and soul to Jesus Christ, my great Savior. And his death and resurrection is why we have hope in this life and in the life to come. Let's join in listening to Dr. Doug Webster as he preaches a sermon on the resurrection entitled Running on Empty. Amen. And let's turn together to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I would like us to walk through this text 
This is a great text for this creedal statement with respect to the resurrection because Paul himself refers to the creed. His creed, the gospel that he has preached to the Corinthian believers. You do realize that there's probably at this point in the semester a certain felt need for affirmation and encouragement with your weariness, your tiredness. And I would say that, you know, for many people, that's probably to the extent that they need encouragement because our society is so organized around present moment happiness and making it through the day that this is countercultural even to be speaking of the resurrection. The resurrection not as an existential symbol for the hope of someone's spirit living on or at a kind of a, a lasting impact of a personality, but a real bodily resurrection. And what is at debate here in the Corinthian church is not so much Christ's resurrection as our bodily resurrection. And Paul crafts a very powerful statement on the resurrection that few of us, brothers and sisters, probably appreciate the poetic, theological depth. It comes across maybe to us as a statement that we have read many times before, but just the way he has crafted this. So we're just going to spend a few moments in this 15th chapter of Corinthians. I'm going to try to stay as anecdotically out of the picture as possible for you to see Paul's argument. Now, note that at the beginning and the end, there is a pastoral concern. In verse 2, otherwise you have believed in vain. You have received this gospel that I preached. And in that gospel you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you, otherwise you believe in vain. And that sense of emptiness, of worthlessness comes at the very end as well. When the Apostle Paul says, because you know, on the basis of the resurrection, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So there is the inclusion. Pastoral concern at the beginning, believing in vain. Pastoral concern at the end, laboring in vain. And in between, there is almost a rhythmic theological argument. Christ is the subject of the first paragraph, and there are seven verbs of which Christ is the subject. Christ died, buried, raised, appeared, 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 appeared. Followed by seven eyes, where the creed flows into testimony, and testimony is followed by proclamation. The creed, apart from preaching, is naked. 
It needs the proclamation of the word and its pastoral application and its ethical impact and its sociological force and its missional impact. It needs all of that to be worked out. The creed without the preaching is naked. Christ is the subject. Make no mistake about it. Died, buried, raised, appeared, 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 appeared. Appeared to one who is now abnormally born. And we just cannot capture the essence of what Paul is getting at there, except to maybe say Paul saw himself very much as damaged goods. Actually persecuting the church, killing those who confessed to Jesus Christ. You wonder why Paul is so dramatic about the resurrection? He has killed believers. His life, his sanity depends on the fact that he will see these people in eternity. For I am the least of the apostles... I don't even deserve to be called an apostle. You see, the creed does have a place for testimony. You may see yourself as damaged goods. But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you're alive fully. Even now, I am the least of the apostles. I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. There's seven I statements here. What a wonderful balance here between Christ the subject and then I, 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 I. But this is the right kind of I. The I that is in God, in Christ. An identity now that has been shaped entirely by this creation and by this redemption and by this resurrection and by this glorification. This is the right kind of I. This is the eye of the identity that you and I so desperately need. And there is no way we can do this, think about this, in any kind of casual, unserious way. Although we live in a very unserious, casual culture. What a beautiful statement. I am what I am. And mean it with all the humility, with all the sense of grace, that only God can provide. And I love this kind of statement. No, I worked harder than all of them. I wonder what Peter and James and John thought when Paul says, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but Christ in me. Whether then... It is I or they. This is what we preach. And this is what you believed. But if it is preached, verse 12, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? They have, and this disturbed Paul greatly, the buying into a dualistic philosophy that minimized the physical self and idealized the disembodied spirit and soul that our physical appetites, our sexual appetites, 
no longer interfered with the fullness and the freedom of the Spirit, and the resurrection played out highly existentially. Remember Rudolf Boltmann, the New Testament scholar, who said that you cannot believe in a historical bodily resurrection. A much nearer to the truth would be a de-supernaturalized, dematerialized, existential sense of resurrection. Boltmann would have fit very well into the kind of group at Corinth that Paul is addressing here. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. There are seven if clauses here. So Christ is the subject of seven verbs. Paul is the seven-time-over first-person singular. And now seven if clauses. While he draws out the dire consequences to our faith of not believing in the bodily resurrection of Christ, If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching's useless, your faith is useless, we're false witnesses, then those who have died in Christ are dead and lost. Your faith is futile, you're still in your sins. If only, verse 19, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all others. You realize that, I don't know, this is the only institution I know of that should not exist in any shape or form if the resurrection is not real. We are all just wasting our time. And we are to be pitied more than all others. So you've got seven, 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 three times over, And then in verse 20, Paul begins a series of three. And there's almost kind of a rhythm here. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. Verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And he will say three things about this resurrection. It's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What were the first fruits? It was the produce, an offering from the soil that was given on the Sunday following Passover Sabbath. And in Deuteronomy 26, there's specific instructions of what the people were to remember as they gave their first fruit offering. And you see, Paul in his praying imagination sees the fulfillment of that first fruit offering in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the first fruit was the first sign of harvest, Christ's resurrection is the sign of our bodily resurrection. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Could you have a more all-encompassing sentence than that? Reaching all the way back to Adam and then projecting all the way forward to the eschatological culmination when everything is handed over to God the Father by the Son, including the triumph over death. First fruits, Adam, the eschatological triumph. This is what the resurrection means to the Apostle Paul. The individual self is contained in all of that wonderful, powerful picture. We come to verse 29, and there are 
three more if clauses, three questions, and a resignation. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? This is the first of three in this section. The second is Paul's life-risking evangelism. If Christ isn't raised, what does it mean to be baptized for the dead? Now, Mormons believe in vicarious baptism. That's why genealogies mean so much to them, because the baptism must be in the exact name of the ancestor that's being baptized vicariously for. This undoubtedly is not what Paul had in mind, baptism by proxy. What I think he did have in mind is baptism because of the testimony of the dead. Some of us have had the opportunity to be there at a birth. And to me, there is no more striking testimony of the image bearer of God than to be there in the delivery room and to welcome your daughter or your son into this world. But I have been surprised by the fact that to be by death's bedside is a wonderful and powerful testimony to the resurrection. I speak here very personally. My father had stomach cancer, and we were really in vigil. For the last three days, he had made no motion whatsoever. His eyes had been shut, no movement whatsoever for three days. And suddenly, he looked square at my mother and raised both arms up in the air and died. Make of that what you will, but for all of us Websters around that bedside, it was a powerful testimony that death did not end all. Life-risking evangelism, Paul said, I never would do this if I didn't believe in the resurrection. I would never be risking my life if I didn't believe in the resurrection. And then in verse... 32, if the dead are not raised, again, he keeps bringing us back to the reality of the fact of the resurrection, and if it didn't happen, what would be the impact? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. In 1969, in a chapel service at Wheaton College, Bob Weber spoke on the silence of God. And in that chapel message, he referred to Peggy Lee's hit song that had just come out. And it went like this, is that all there is? Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball if that's all there is. And you'd have to be there. I guess you'd have to be there in the late 60s and the impact of that particular message. But it just seemed like the student body was stunned. It's like they had collectively gotten really bad news from home. Some were actually in tears. A lot of classes were canceled in the afternoon. Somehow, by the Spirit, Bob Weber had brought home to the Wheaton College community that if indeed God is dead, 
there really is no hope. Now, our culture has grown to kind of be okay with that and to kind of live in this bleak optimism. But Paul is wanting to make sure that the believing community doesn't get comfortable there. Verse 33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. I wonder if we could ever speak that way to ourselves living in the company of sort of a meltdown rather than meaninglessness or weariness instead of worthlessness, understanding that really what is at stake here is so profound with the very truths and realities that we've become so comfortable with, so casual about. Bad company corrupts good character. And then Paul moves his argument. He moves his argument to looking at nature. He's looked at salvation history. And I'd say to you that the cross of Jesus Christ is something that could be anticipated in every aspect of salvation history. In every image, every illusion, every form, every type, every picture, you kind of see salvation history moving to the cross. Now Paul is going to argue that in nature whether it's the Big Bang or the language of DNA or the periodic table or mathematical formulas or the anthropic principle of the universe or any of this, it speaks to the reality, the credibility of the resurrection. The resurrection is something that takes place in history but is not of history. It has no historical causality. It is something that God does. And here again, as he looks at nature, there is not a cause in nature for the resurrection, but it is consistent with the wonder of nature. And he begins by looking at you know, what he says in verse 35, but someone will ask, well, how are the dead raised? And you cannot help but feel that Paul is asking that question somewhat cynically. What kind of body will they come? How foolish, you couple that with him just having shamed them, how foolish what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And he takes a tiny seed. And those urban suburbanites among us, myself included, have no appreciation for what the farmer holds in his hand when he holds a handful of seed. I remember being in northern Ghana as an agriculturalist was comparing various seeds in the tribe of Jenga. And his life, you know, he was holding the future viability of the village in his hand with the work that they had done on seeds. And Paul is saying, just look at this tiny seed. And you have no idea looking at the acorn that it's going to become the oak tree or the zygote, the human person. Isn't this marvelous, Paul is saying? How do you find the resurrection so difficult to believe when you just look at nature and creation? You know, we believe the scientists when they say that the core of 
mass of a neutron star, a spoonful of that matter may weigh a billion pounds. We, it's no, it doesn't cause any doubt for us to say that there's 140 billion galaxies in our visible universe. We don't bat an eye. Or that an atom is one one-hundredth millionth of a millimeter. We believe in atoms. And this is Paul's point. Nature, the tiny seed, the splendor of the stars, the diversity of creation, all of that speaks to the comprehensibility, the believability, the credibility of the resurrection. So he's had three on the side of salvation. History. Adam, the first fruits, and a triumphant Christ. And then, with respect to the impact of the resurrection, he goes on to talk about the testimony of the church of the baptized, and then life-risking evangelism, and resignation, the only recourse if there is no baptism. And then he speaks of the tiny seed, the diversity of life, the splendor of the stars, all leading to his description in verse 42 of the difference between the perishable and the imperishable. You see, there's continuity between creation and redemption, between nature and the spiritual life. There is a connection, but it's not a causal connection. It's a logical connection. It is a relational connection, a relational connection between the mind of God and that nature and that redemption, that natural light and that spiritual light. And now, in seven ways, he's going to describe the difference between these two. Verse 42, track with me, if you will. We just have a few more moments. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam was a life a living being, the last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual, and the first man, and the second man, and the earthly man, and the heavenly man. Verse 49, And just as we have been born by the image of the earthly man, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man. Seven ways of looking at the relationship between the natural life and the spiritual life, between a death-defining life, because, you know, death is at the root of all of our botany, all of our biology. Your circulation system, your digestive system, it all works because of death. Things break down. Things decay. What's it going to be like with the new biology? The old biology is enamored with the relationship of all flesh being alike. That 60% of your human genes can be found in the fruit fly. That just is a buzz for scientists. But Paul wants us to see that this wonderful, powerful splendor and diversity... You know, a hundred years ago, truths about the cosmos and the cell were we're not even imagined of what we have understood today. 
It makes for me, it makes to me anyways, the resurrection so believable and it's tracking with how the Apostle Paul is thinking here. That sevenfold contrasting description leads to a declaration in verse 50, which Benjamin read to us, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. There's no naturalistic explanation for the resurrection. There's no causal connection within nature. But the beauty and power and wisdom of nature speaks testimony to the reality that God will do this. This is the mystery, not a puzzle to be figured out, not a problem to be solved, but a trust to experience. We will not all sleep, but we will be changed in the flash, in the twinkling of an eye, in the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed, for the perishable must be clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Just look at that line. Death has been swallowed up like a morsel. We throw everything we've got at death to try to bring it down, to try to somehow solve it, resolve it. We, we do everything we possibly can. And here the picture here is that death is going to be swallowed like a pill. No longer has victory, no longer has any poison. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law of it. And here's the climax. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the climax, but that's not the conclusion. The conclusion comes in verse 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You might have anticipated at that point some doxology. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. No. Or something that sounds a little bit more heroic. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. No. Or I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. No. Instead, will you stand firm? Will you hang in there? Will you know, will you really know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain? That because of the resurrection, you don't believe in vain? You're not running on empty. You're not laboring in vain. You're not running on empty. You're running in the strong power of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord of creation, the Lord of redemption, the Lord who is powerful enough to bring this all about. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the way that you moved the Apostle to speak to us today by the power of your Holy Spirit, to the glory of the Father, and in the name of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, risen Lord and Savior. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, beesondivinity.com. 
Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.